When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is Matt Chancy, and today's another episode of the Tax Alpha podcast. Um, Today's podcast, we are bringing on a board-certified business litigation attorney from Orlando, Florida. His name is Gary Salzman, and he is a shareholder uh, with his firm, also an arbitrator and a mediator, and he is going to explain a little bit the differences from those today. From the University of Miami Law School, uh, or University of Miami undergrad and grad for law school, and I am not even going to attempt to say the name of his firm because he has a couple of partners that have complicated names. And I do not want to mess them up, but I will let Gary do that instead. Um, But thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Gary. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Thank you. My law firm is called Garganese Weiss DeGreston Salzman. We've got 20 lawyers here in Orlando. Uh, We cover the entire state. Uh, The firm does everything from local government representation. We're city attorneys for several cities in Central Florida, uh, insurance defense, commercial litigation, um, arbitration, mediation, med mal, defense, insurance coverage issues, a, a wide variety of, of practice areas. I've been personally practicing law since 1988 for so about 34 years, and I've been board certified since 1997. Very nice. Very nice. Well, you know, on our pre-call, we were talking a little bit. There's a lot of attorneys out there. And, I, you know, it's funny, I think on my social media this morning, I saw a picture of people taking the bar exam right now in like Jacksonville, Florida. And there's a room that looks like it's got 10,000 people sitting for the bar in it. Yeah. But yet out of all those people, what you do is very, in a very small, super specialized compared to a lot of other attorneys. Let's talk about that. Sure. And by the way, today is the second day of the bar exam. It's actually given in Tampa. Uh, They had a full day yesterday, a full day today. And then they get to breathe a sigh of relief tonight. But yes, there's, I think, over 200,000 lawyers in the, in the Florida bar. Uh, I don't know how many of those are out-of-state lawyers. Uh, the majority of the lawyers in Florida practice in either personal injury, whether it's plaintiffs or defense, uh, divorce, or criminal law. The lawyer side of my practice is devoted to Uh, commercial litigation, which is essentially business-to-business legal disputes. Uh, Most of them are contract-based. In some manner, there's something called business torts, where there isn't necessarily a contract, but um, there's some type of commercial dispute where someone is saying the other side did something really bad, like committed fraud, 
there's something called interference with business relationships, uh, non-compete issues. There's, there's a whole variety of, of business litigation disputes that I handle. Um, I almost always are, am representing a business rather than an individual. Most of my clients are either regional or national companies. Some of them are publicly traded. In fact, a lot of the um, real estate litigation that I do is on behalf of uh, what's called a REIT. You probably know what a real estate investment trust is. So that's a publicly traded company that um, invests and typically manages their own real estate. So the other 50% of my time, I serve as a neutral, as an arbitrator for those same type of disputes or as a mediator uh, for also for those types of disputes. So I stay in my lane, um, whether it's as a lawyer, arbitrator, or as a mediator, but those are very different hats. Sure, sure. Well, I'm a lay person, like most of the people probably listen, especially compared to someone with your level of expertise. So I guess, you know, we talked about this on pre-call a little bit, but I can't imagine anyone wants to be in a legal dispute, but it happens. It's just, if you're going to do business, I think there's some old axioms in business. If you haven't been sued yet, you're, you're really not doing that much business with anybody, right? At some point, you're going to end up getting sued. So, you know, what are some of the biggest things that you get involved in from the lawsuit side? I'm sure there's things that become repetitive. And you gave a couple of examples that were great. Non-competes with, you know, um, employers stealing customers. I can totally see how that would, would apply. What are some of the other factors? patterns that, that falls into that consistently show up um, where you have to litigate those deals. Right. I, on the non-compete side, it's typically a high-level employee, sometimes a salesperson, but usually an executive that signs a non-compete agreement and then leaves the employer. And it is in some way either competing with the employer, soliciting customers, soliciting um, employees to hire them away. And in Florida, uh, those are generally enforceable. Most people think that they're not. Um, they generally are. There's a statute uh, in, that you have to satisfy, but uh, as long as you can show a legitimate business interest and reasonable duration and reasonable geographic area, uh, and there's a lot of details to that, um, you can get an injunction, which is a court order, enforcing that and shutting down the competitor or making that employee leave uh, the employment of the competitor, typically for somewhere between one and two years, depending on you know, what their role was. Um, it can actually be longer if they sold their business and gave a non-compete as part of the sale. That can be up to five years. So that's one area that I litigate. I also will arbitrate those cases and mediate those cases. Any type of real estate dispute, sometimes there's a dispute over parties' obligations under a contract uh, for the sale and purchase of real estate. Sometimes there's a due diligence issue, um, lending issue. You never know. Sometimes it's a use issue. They're trying to get a, a change in use. Sometimes there's a restrict, something called a restrictive covenant that's been recorded in the public records that governs real estate. And there's a dispute over whether uh, either a buyer or a tenant can do what they want to do in that real estate that is restricted by contract. Uh, I actually had a case. This is uh, an interesting war story. I represented a publicly traded REIT that owned a shopping center in Claremont, and they had sold an out parcel to Buffalo Wild Wings. 
one of the franchisees of Buffalo Wild Wings. And as part of that sale, they granted a restrictive covenant over both parcels. So the existing shopping center and the out parcel that they said that the owner of the shopping center would never lease or sell to a company that was a sports bar. So Buffalo Wild Wings is saying, I'll buy this this out parcel, but I don't want to have competition in the subservient shopping center. So a couple of years, a year or so later, my client, the landlord wants to lease a space to actually does lease a space to uh, world of beer and Buffalo Wild Wings says that's a sports bar. They have TVs showing sports, you know, all this stuff going on, you know, sports specials. And they say, that's a sports bar. You can't lease to them. My client says, no, they're not a sports bar. And they sued both my client, the landlord, and Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, not bu- no, Buffalo Wild Wings sued. They sued World of Beers franchisee. And we had a, a one-day trial um, up in Tavares on what a sports bar is, literally, and whether World of Beer was a sports bar. And I actually hired an expert that testified what a sports bar was and what were the indications of a sports bar. Um, sports memorabilia on the wall, uh, live TVs with sound showing the main game, waitresses or, or servers wearing sports you know, uniforms, all this kind of stuff. Basically, all the things that Buffalo Wild Wings did that we contrasted with World of Beer and what they didn't do. See, World of Beer, they don't have a main game. They don't have sound. They don't have sports memorabilia on the wall. It's all beers of the world. So we successfully proved that the theme of World of Beer is international beers, and it wasn't a sports bar. We won that case, and Buffalo Wild Wings wrote a pretty big check to my client for our attorney's fees. Interesting. Very. See, I would have said, based on my knee-jerk reaction, that it probably was a sports bar because you could go in and watch a game and stuff. But hey, that's not. <laughs> well, one of the most interesting parts of that case was we did what's called a view. So this was a judge trial, wasn't a jury trial. So we scheduled a view where everyone, the judge, court reporter, the lawyers, the parties, went to Buffalo Wild Wings on a Sunday afternoon and just observed. And this was during football season. So they had the main game. People are cheering. Some lady screamed in the judge's ear and he cracked up. Uh, And then we went to World of Beer and he saw the contrast. He saw how people were socializing. There was music playing. I mean, all the screens had games on, but he could see, you know, that this was more of a social international beer themed uh, restaurant, uh, you know, bar, really. And he saw the contrast. You know, they say a a picture says a thousand words. Well, that was it. So I knew as soon as the judge agreed to do that view that we were going to likely win that case. 
That's super interesting. Super interesting. So does that dovetail? Okay. So love that. That's a great, love examples and stories that makes it so tangible for people to, to kind of understand where that something like that would bubble up. So should in that particular agreement, because you've talked about arbitration and mediation, should in that contract, Buffalo Wild Wings had laid that out in their contract, or maybe it was the world of beer contract that it needed to be laid out in that said, Hey, this can't be, you know, litigated. This has to be arbitrated or mediated. You know, does that dovetail into that where that could have been an opportunity that they could have set up that way? Um, partially, you know, contracts have what most people look at as boilerplate terms. Okay. They're the types of terms that you see in almost every contract. What most non-lawyers don't understand is that boilerplate is very, very important. So one of the things in, in that's typically in commercial contracts is a jury waiver. Businesses don't want to have their legal disputes decided by a jury because most jurors don't understand the intricacies of a business deal. They're typically not business owners. They have not typically sold or bought businesses or commercial real estate or managed commercial real estate. In fact, most people don't know this. In the state court system, our jurors are the jury pool is selected from our DMV records. So I tell people in my mediations when they have a jury case, I said, go down to the DMV, randomly pick six people, and that's your jury. Well, if you do that, I'll bet you dinner right now at Burns that none of them are going to be business owners. And if you got a business to business fight of a high level, you don't want it in front of a jury. Uh, juries are very unpredictable. You want it in front of a judge or better, you want it in front of an arbitrator uh, that has specialized knowledge in commercial issues, understands contracts, has experience with contracts, interpreting contracts. Just having that, that substantive experience in the area of law is significant. And this is not a knock on our judges. We have some great, great judges, especially in Orange County, uh, Florida. But most of our judges, if you look at the judges on the bench, you know, uh, by far the majority of them were personal injury lawyers, divorce lawyers, or criminal lawyers before they went on the bench. So the experience they're getting in commercial law, in business law, in complex commercial disputes is on the bench, not as a lawyer. Now, we do have a business court in Orlando, and the reason we put together that business court was to have a judge that has that specialized knowledge and can can stay with the case um, long enough and be able to handle those cases. So getting back to your original question, first, a very important term is have a jury waiver in your contract if you don't want to be in front of a jury. Second thing is look at the substance of your contract. Is it complex? Does it require specialized knowledge if there's an anticipated or a possible dispute? If there is, you want to think about an arbitration clause. An arbitration clause is where when a dispute arises, instead of going to court, you start an arbitration, which is a private confidential proceeding where you hire a private lawyer like me or someone, someone else like me, but doesn't have to be me, but someone with significant experience in that area of law, and they become your private judge, 
and the entire the case is confidential. So it never gets aired in the public setting. It's never subject to a press release or anything like that, unless unless one of the parties is a is a public entity, and then you know there's sunshine law issues. So, for example, most construction contracts have arbitration clauses, and that's because if you have a construction defect case or something like that, you want someone with significant construction experience to make that decision. Um, in an arbitration, you can also have a panel of three arbitrators, and they don't have to be lawyers. So you can have a panel in that construction case where one lawyer is board certified in construction law, and then you have someone else that's an engineer, and then someone else that's an architect or a general contractor or an electrician or some type of specialized knowledge. And now that panel as a group has all that experience to make that decision to decide the case for you. Same thing with intellectual property, uh, patent issues. You know, you may want someone with technical experience. So you want to look at the subject matter of your contract and decide, is this specialized enough that I want to have a private arbitration? By the way, same thing with employment contracts. Almost all of my clients, when I do an employment contract for them, I have an arbitration clause in there because I don't want an employee's claim or our claim against the employee to be aired in the public setting because court cases are public. So if there's a discrimination claim or you know unfair wage practice, uh, unfair labor practices act claim, anything like that, I want it arbitrated, not litigated in court. Also, I don't want it in front of a jury. So when I'm representing the employer, then I'll have an arbitration clause. Another clause to think about is a pre-suit mediation clause or pre-arbitration mediation clause. And what that is, is before anyone can run to court, file a lawsuit or file an arbitration, you have to mediate first. And this is a very valuable tool because before everyone lawyers up and goes to court and you know people are really angry, you might be able to salvage that business relationship by going to a mediation where you have a third party neutral person, someone like myself, that helps you voluntarily agree to a resolution. Most construction contracts also have this clause, especially because you know you got an ongoing construction uh, project. You don't want it to stop because now you're in litigation or arbitration. So you go to mediation, you get it resolved, and you move on with the project. Um, same thing with a business-to-business relationship. You've got a vendor-customer uh, dispute. You don't want to lose that customer, but you have a legitimate dispute. So, so go to mediation, get it resolved. You can go with or without lawyers, and then you move on. But it's a great tool to avoid litigation, avoiding spending a lot of money with lawyers, and maybe getting a result that you don't like. Interesting. That's really, okay, I'm going to assume something too, and you did lead to it, but I want to be very obvious about this. So not only are you the guy that's involved in the litigation or the arbitration or the mediation, but you're the guy that they would come to at the very beginning to write those contracts to make sure that if these things fall apart, that's the path that we would ultimately choose to follow and for those particular reasons. Part of my practice is what's called transactional, where you write contracts, but it's a very small part of my practice. And it's only for existing clients. And typically, 
any kind of complicated deal that a, where a contract has to be drafted, I refer that out to lawyers that only do transactions, that they're either transactional lawyers, corporate lawyers, because my practice is focused on the dispute side. Those lawyers will frequently get me involved in a complicated deal that they're putting together where I'll help them with these um, dispute resolution provisions in their contract. So I'll help them draft the arbitration clause or the mediation clause. And then I'll also review the contract from a litigator standpoint, that if there was a legal dispute and I have to take this to court or arbitration, where do I see the holes? Where do I see the vague terms or the ambiguous terms that someone's going to have a fight over? So I could tell you another worse story. I, I won't name the client, but in a client um, in Central Florida was doing a deal selling a product that he developed, a, a, a medical device product to Johnson and Johnson. And so we were negotiating the deal and we went, we fly up to Cincinnati, I think it was, to close the deal. And with me is this transactional lawyer. And at the last, and I'm there as the litigator, but you know, watching over the transactional lawyer's shoulder. And at the last minute, Johnson and Johnson takes out a very important clause of the contract while we're up there. And for me, it was critical. And for me, it was a deal breaker. And so I stepped in and said, there's no deal without this clause in there and told the client that. And eventually they put it back in. And two years down the road, if that clause hadn't been in that contract, it would have cost the client $3 million in lost revenue, not yeah. damages, but in lost revenue. But because that contract was still there, that provision was still there, he was able to get paid what he was entitled to. So transactional lawyers and litigation lawyers look at contracts differently from a different perspective. Transactional lawyers are looking at the flow of the deal. Is it clear? You know, Are they addressing all the terms and they want to get the deal done? A litigation lawyer is looking at it. If I had to go to court on this, where are the problems? It's more of a what if uh, perspective. So you guys kind of work in a tandem, in a team. If it's a big enough deal, then yes. I mean, it's not because, you know, it's it's double the attorney's fees. But in a big enough deal, in this case, the example I gave you was probably a $15 million deal. That's a big enough deal to have two perspectives on that contract. Sure. So here's a question that when I heard you say that, if Johnson & Johnson tried to remove what you believe to be a really important clause in that contract, do you believe that's because potentially they had in their thought process somehow that with this acquisition or whatever they were doing, they might run over that piece of it? And they're like, we're going to see if we can get that pulled out. I mean, I'm not suggesting that they knew they were going to do it, but is that in the realm of thinking whatsoever? No, I, I mean, it was a negotiating point. It was it was a what if on their side. And I don't know that they at that time contemplated what they would do two years down the road, but their side is, is also negotiating from a what if standpoint. And they wanted to minimize their exposure if it went down that path. And, you know, it wasn't anything bad or you know nefarious. It was, you know, lawyers doing their job and it was a negotiation. I mean, it was it was nothing more than a, a good faith negotiation. But the point was, is that as a litigator, I spotted that issue 
and you know my foot down with the client. It, ultimately, it's the client's decision. It, you know, lawyers don't make those decisions. Sure. Interest, super interesting. And I ask because I guess, you know, I have a couple of clients and a couple of friends that have gone through substantial sales to larger companies, acquisitions, right? And, you know, many times uh, those structure, one particular, there was an earnout, right? Like over years, they were going to get some of the money. And the new acquiring company forced the old owner who was supposed to be transitioning to do things in the business that he didn't want to do or felt uncomfortable. Fire legacy employees that have been there for 20 or 30 years, right? Yeah. And he was just like, look, I can't sleep at night. These people have been like family to me and they're the only reason I had this exit. And now this other company coming in is forcing me to fire those people and literally walked away from years of earnout payments to be able to live with a clean conscience, which that's expensive, right? That's a very common fact pattern, believe it or not. How do you stop that from happening? Well, your first, it's in the drafting is you make sure that those earnout provisions are as narrow as possible and give you that discretion to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then after the fact, if you're being asked to do something that you don't think is legal or is, is contrary to what the contract says, then you got to get your lawyer involved relatively soon. But, you know, morality and conscience is not the same as something that's legal or illegal or violates a contract. You know, your own moral code doesn't necessarily have to match what a contract allows or what the law allows. So just because he felt bad about it, if he was obligated to do it, then he's obligated to do it. Otherwise, you know, you're going to lose that earnout. Sure. I mean, but then the other side of that is, you know, the bigger company had done this type thing to smaller companies many, many times before. And the smaller company had never gone through such a thing and never had that experience. They didn't even know what to protect themselves from really in the grand scheme of things. Right. Well, that that's why don't be penny wise, pound foolish on the front end of a legal deal. I've had very sophisticated clients who thought they could draft the contract themselves or they hired someone that really didn't have the experience because they were trying to save money. You know, instead of spending five or $10,000 on the front end to make sure the contract was right, they save either all or some of that money. And then they end up coming to me and spend two, three, 400,000 on litigation. And it is what it is, but you got to you got to spend the time, spend the money uh, to have it done right at the front end. It, you know, that's not 100% guarantee that you're going to avoid litigation. But if you are in litigation or arbitration, you'll have a better advantage. You'll have better documentation to win. Or if it's such a one-sided dispute, it'll likely settle in your favor. Sure. Interesting. Great point, by the way. And I agree with what you're saying. You know, sometimes it, what's the, you know, an ounce of prevention or sometimes is better than, you know, we're. Yeah. And by the way, that goes for your accountant, your tax advisor, your investment advisor. I mean, all of your high level advisors don't be penny wise, pound foolish. Pay the money to get the right advice, to get someone with experience, and it'll pay off later. That's right. I always say don't trip over pennies on the way to dollars. Right. Or, you know, you get what you pay for. Get what you pay That's for. the flip side. You get what you pay for. 
You get what you pay for. There you go. Very good. So, okay. We had talked on the pre-call a little bit about, um, so very interesting topics. You've given us some stuff on employment. You've talked about some real estate. You've talked about businesses stuff. So, and when I brought up that fact pattern, you're like, hey, that's a really common fact pattern. That happens a lot. So maybe that's a fun segue to go down. What are some of the common things that you see over and over that for, to you seem like, oh, yep, there's the, one of those cases again, you know, on your desk versus something that like a small, mid-sized entrepreneur, um, it may be the first time they ever see it. And when they see it, it's totally terrifying or devastating or to their business or whatever. Are, are there some examples like that? Because that was a great one. Well, yeah. I mean, when you're either buying or selling a business, the common theme is you didn't disclose this to me. This wasn't in your books and records. You have two sets of books. And so I'm not going to pay you the balance of the purchase price. And then the other side says, yeah, it was there. You had the opportunity to do diligence. You know, you would have seen it if we don't have two, two sets of books. So, you know, be transparent and document, document what has been provided in due diligence, uh, have a list, have them acknowledge what they've had the opportunity to review, whether they've reviewed it or not. And again, make sure your closing documents are solid because otherwise, you know, that earnout or the what's in escrow or whatever it is that's being held back, you're never going to see. Some other general advice I would give business owners is you need a record of every important conversation you have. I tell clients documents win cases, documents win legal disputes. So that means when you have a substantive, important conversation with anybody that you're doing business with, whether it's a customer, a vendor, a bank, your borrower, whoever it is, buyer, seller, document that conversation because you'd be surprised how many people have selective memory later down the road, typically a year to two years down the road when you're in court because most business cases take somewhere between one and two years. And and now the courts are backed up. So it's closer to two years than three years by the time you might get to a trial. So what I mean by document is there's got to be something in writing that memorializes that conversation or a meeting or an event or something. One easy way to do it is you send a thank you email. Thank you for discussing this with me on this day. Um, As you said, blah, blah, blah. As I said, blah, blah, blah. If you have any questions, please, you know, feel free to contact me. So you kept it nice, but you've made a record of what was discussed. And if you have a legal dispute later and they never responded to that email to say, no, that's not what we said, I can actually get that email admitted into evidence as long as it was sent around the same time on the same day of your conversation. Because in under the evidence code, there's a couple of reasons. There's something called business records and when or an admission by silence, meaning when a reasonable person would have responded and disagreed and they failed to, that becomes an admission by your silence. By not responding, you've now admitted the contents of that email. That's admissible evidence now that would go in front of a judge or a jury. So you're creating that evidence, that record. 
Another way to do it is you can do a memo to your file. Um, it's not as good, but it, it's also, there's something called a recorded recollection, as long as it's made about the same time as the conversation, about the same time, I mean, the same day and close to the time of the conversation. And it's a regular practice that you do in your business. It can come in as a business record as well. There's lots of different ways to document that conversation, but it's important that you have it. Otherwise, it's a he said, she said, you know, your word against my word. And then it's who the judge or the jury believes. That just comes down to credibility. And so you flip a coin on that one. Something else that comes up often with the entrepreneur mid to small size business is we talk about documenting and creating evidence. And then every once in a while, someone records a telephone conversation, especially, you know, with iPhones now, you know, it's, it's very easy to record a conversation. That's a felony in Florida, or it can be a felony in Florida. If you have, if it's a private conversation where both sides have a reasonable expectation of privacy and it's a conversation that's occurring in Florida, not in a public setting. That's a crime in Florida. You can be prosecuted for recording a private conversation. Now, there are exceptions to this. If you go get a, a warrant, you know, there's probable cause and the police get a warrant and they get a wiretap and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, none of that applies here. But, but two business people having a conversation, if you don't get their consent, to record that conversation, and there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, not only is that recording inadmissible in a civil case, you can be prosecuted. So for example, in our podcast here, when you hit record and Zoom puts out a click box that says, do you consent to the recording? And I click yes, I've now consented. So there's nothing wrong with this recording. Without that box, it could be illegal. That's why Zoom does that, by the way. And every once in a while, I get a client or, or opposing side thinking they have the smoking gun. I've got them recorded on. Yeah, I say, OK, well, now we got to settle the case because, you know, you've committed a felony. Oh my goodness. So that's something that a lot of people don't know. I'll give you one other interesting piece of advice. Every once in a while, I get a case where either a client or the opposing side wants to say, this sometimes comes up in mediations. They want to say, I'm going to report you to the state attorney because you committed a crime. You defrauded me. You stole my money. I'm going to report you to the authorities unless you pay me back that money or you settle the civil lawsuit or you do something that's part of a civil claim. That's also a felony. That's extortion. Um, Florida has an extortion law that says you are not allowed to threaten criminal prosecution to settle a civil claim. And by the way, that also includes threatening a grievance against someone's license. So for example, a general contractor who's licensed, you can't say, I'm gonna grieve you contractor unless you pay me back this money or something like that. That's also extortion. I'm going to report um, you to the Department of Business and Professional Regulation is unprofessional if you, you don't can't make that threat. If you think you got a grievance or you think someone's going to commit a crime, you just got to report it. Just do it. Don't threaten to do it. That's a no-no. Don't threaten to do it. 
Wow. Super interesting. Don't threaten to do it. I mean, I think that's just like, it feels like that's human nature. You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, I mean, I totally get your point, but I think human nature in a contentious situation, when you feel like somebody got the best over you on something, you're like, man, you know, if you don't make good on that contract that you promised, I'm going to, I'm going to report you to the state of Florida. Well, you, You think that's leverage. You know, outside of the legal context, it is leverage. You know, who wants to who wants to have to defend themselves, you know, in a potential criminal prosecution? But that's why the courts, well, not the courts, the legislature has said that's off limits. You know, that's unfair. You know, you can't threaten criminal prosecution to settle a civil case. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. And I just, just, I think I would see that being somebody's knee jerk reaction. And I know that we've all been in a situation in our life somewhere where something like that's come up, you know, that's, that, um, that's very funny. Very interesting, man. Um, so let me ask a question. How do you get compensated for what it is that you do? How do, how do customers that want to hire you, how do they pay you? Sure. Uh, lawyers in general, there, there are different types of fee arrangements, I'm sure you've heard, you've seen on the TV, um, personal injury lawyers, at least on the plaintiff side, typically do what's called contingent fee agreements. Most uh, non-personal injury lawyers work on an hourly basis. That's how I work. For long-term clients, I have fee agreements with them. I have agreed hourly rates. They pay me. I bill each month. They pay me each month. Same thing with mediations. The lawyers and their law firms hire me. The law firms agree to pay my fee. I charge, again, by the hour. Um, I send a bill at the end of the mediation, after the mediation is done, and the law firms pay me. Typically, their clients will pay me, but legally, the law firms are responsible for my fee. And then in arbitrations, it's a little different because most arbitrations come through some type of arbitration service or company. Um, I'm on the American Arbitration Association's panels, multiple panels, several commercial, financial, employment, healthcare, several panels. And so when I'm selected as an arbitrator through AAA, I give an estimate of my fee for the entire case from the beginning all the way through final hearing, through writing an award, and then they bill that estimate to the parties, uh, or if it's an employment case, it's billed to the employer. That is paid in advance as a deposit that AAA holds. I send my bills to AAA, they pay me from that deposit. The only other difference usually for new clients is I also require retainer deposits that I'll quote a retainer deposit, which is money that's put in my trust account. I bill against that and clients replenish that each month uh, because I have no you know, existing relationship with that client. They're new. So it's also a cash flow tool for my law firm. Sure. And I was going to ask that. I figure with a new client, you know, you say, hey, here's what we might need. Send this in and we'll draw down on it accordingly and you can replenish it. So that makes sense right, to you. Exactly. So you build the relationship, you know. I remember the first time I ever, I think the first time I ever had a lot of experience like that was when my dad passed away and I had to hire somebody to probate the estate and they called me and they would, you know, update me on stuff. And then, and I was like, oh, that's good. They're keeping me in the loop. And then I would see the invoice come and it was like six minute intervals. They were charging me for every time they did that. And then the next time I was like, stop calling me and telling me. (laughs) Right. That's true. And, you know, a, a lawyer's inventory is their time. 
that's the product that we have to sell is our time, our advice, our um, thoughts, our analysis, our skill, um, our, our presence sometimes. And, you know, some clients that, that haven't had a lot of experience with lawyers don't like that, but that's the way most lawyers bill. Every once in a while, you can do a flat fee or a monthly retainer, but typically that would just cover ongoing advice, letter writing, but it wouldn't cover litigation. Every once in a while, I do that with a client where they'll pay me a flat amount per month. I'm available for phone calls. I'm available to to review letters, um, write letters, things like that, but not litigation. And when you litigate in the space that you're in, commercial real estate, commercial businesses, commercial employment agree and stuff, none of that is on a contingency basis. If we win in this contract, then I get paid a percentage of damages or something. It's literally just the hourly rate, right? Right. I think in 34 years, I've done a hybrid contingent fee case twice where um, I agreed to a reduced hourly rate and a smaller percentage of any recovery. So typically in a, in a personal injury case, the Florida bar has a schedule of percentages that you're allowed to charge. In a commercial case, I don't remember, but I don't think you're, you're subject to that restriction. But it's generally a third of a recovery pre-suit. And then I think it's 40% at one point once lawsuits filed. So what I've done twice was a reduced hourly rate, which was about 50% of my regular rate. And like a 15% contingent fee, uh, success fee, something like that. And um, the problem is with those kind of cases, business cases, commercial cases are very time intensive and they require my time a lot. It's not like I can, I can have my paralegal work up the file like a personal injury lawyer typically would or you know, a junior associate lawyer work up the file, just hand it to me, and and my time is limited. Most of my clients hire me, and I'm working on that file primarily, and I'm delegating some tasks to my associates, some tasks to my, my paralegal, but it's just so much more time-intensive and, and, frankly, complex. At least I think it's complex, more complex, but, you know, personal injury lawyers would probably disagree with me, but that's okay. You know, so contingent fees just don't work typically in a commercial setting. That's why you hardly see it. There actually are a couple of lawyers in town, very good lawyers, really, really good lawyers in town that do do commercial contingent fee cases. There's uh, the Morgan and Morgan group has a business trial uh, group over there. They have some very good lawyers there. One of them, Paul San Giovanni is a former president of the Orange County Bar Association came from a big law firm in town, but they've got several really good commercial lawyers. And then um, there's a, another lawyer in town, uh, Tucker Bird, who uh, also does commercial contingent fee lawyers. He came from Greenberg Traurig. He also came from the more, he started the business trial group at Morgan Morgan with John Morgan and then left there and opened up his own shop. And he also does um, commercial contingent fee where you know all of them are excellent lawyers. So if it's the right case, there's it's possible to find a lawyer to do it on a contingent fee. But typically, there can't be any possible collection issue, meaning if they win, they can't have to worry about collecting. So there's either insurance involved 
or is a large company or the company owns real estate that is unencumbered. So they know they're going to collect if they win and they'll evaluate the case. It's, you know, it's, it's got to be a good case. They're not going to take a hard, close case on a contingent fee. It's just, it's not a good investment for the lawyer. Understood. I get it. So, and we're getting close to our time today, but you brought up something in our pre-call that I want you to talk about, because I, I know this is something unique about you and your expertise. You talked about the limited number of people that, number one, have your specialty, but number two, are board certified in what it is that you do. And I think that I've heard that term thrown around. I'm sure other people have, but what is the process of becoming board certified? What is it? What did you go through? Why is it important that somebody should know that? Can- sure. Well, the Florida Bar has a board certification program that's been around for, I think, at least 20 years, maybe more. There's 20-something areas of that you can become board certified in. Uh, not every area is, is there a board certification for, but it's a process that the bar has put together to be able to hold yourself out as a specialist in that area. And under very limited circumstances, can you say you're a specialist, that or an expert? Uh, the bar has very specific rules on holding yourself out and telling people or putting on your website or, or any, in any manner advertising that you're either an expert or a specialist in an area of law. One way to do it is to become board certified. Uh, there are other ways, but in my opinion, the main way. To become board certified, each area of, of certification has its own requirements But typically, and this is all on the Florida Bar's website, typically you have to first meet the eligibility requirements to become board certified. So in my case, to become board certified in business litigation, I had to have shown the bar in a a ridiculously long application, like 50 page application, that I had the requisite experience in business litigation, which is a defined term, that I had had at least one jury trial in a five-year look back. Now it's a longer look back. When I applied in 97, it was only five years. And that in that five-year period, I think I had eight business litigation cases that were actually tried and submitted to the trier of fact for a decision. And I had to have a significant role in that uh, process. So I either, I questioned a witness, I gave opening statement, closing argument, cross-examined a witness, um, but there had to, it had to have involved testimony. Also, it could be an arbitration; doesn't have to be a trial. But it has to be a business litigation case. And then there were other requirements where I certified I had at least twenty five other business litigation cases, and a certain number of a certain percentage of my practice is devoted to business litigation. So that's just to get the eligibility to be able to sit for the exam. Then you you have to take an all-day, very rigorous exam that you now prove you have that specialized knowledge. Uh, I actually sat on the Business Litigation Certification Committee for six years and then sat on the Board of Legal Specialization and Education for the Florida Bar for another six years. And, And the board that is called BLSE supervises and runs the entire board certification program. And the Business Litigation Certification Committee writes the exam for business lit and grades the exam for business lit. So I was part of the group that wrote parts of the exam and graded the exam. These are very difficult 
exams. If you think about it, the Florida bar is allowing you to hold yourself out as a specialist. So it's generally harder than the Florida bar. It's narrower. You know, the Florida bar is two days of tests, one multi-state day, which is a national part of the exam, and then one day on just Florida law. And it tests criminal law, civil procedure, criminal procedure, um, trust in the states, business organizations, contracts, personal injury. I mean, lots of different areas where the board certification areas are in, a, in that defined area. And each exam has exam specifications and an outline. So you have a general idea of what to study, but it goes much deeper into your knowledge and really tries to weed out the people that aren't really specialists that just do this occasionally as opposed to someone that really is a specialist in that area of law. And uh, so that's what you have to go through and you have to pass the exam. And then every five years, you have to recertify. And to recertify, you have to show you still meet the eligibility requirements. You don't have to take the test again, but there are a recertification requirements for every area. That's pretty interesting. And look, it's we're all looking to find the person that's the best at what they do, right? And it's like, if you've, if you've ever been to a doctor and you were going to have a medical procedure, I think one of the most logical questions after they explain it to you is, how many times have you done that? Right. right. Well, and, and board certification is, is one measure of a lawyer's expertise, knowledge, and also, by the way, professionalism and ethics. There's a part of the process where confidential evaluations are sent to judges, to lawyers. Some of them are random. Some of them are people you list and they come back and rate you both from a knowledge and skill standpoint and from a professional and ethics standpoint. And every once in a while, you know, someone is denied certification because they don't meet the peer review. This is all peer review. And that's also done each recertification period. So it's not just that you know what you're doing and you're skillful, but you're also professional and ethical. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> That's, that seems very reasonable. <laughs> I think so, too. I think so, too. Well, Gary, I can't tell you how appreciative I am that you came on today and shared your information with us, your, your expertise, your experience, some really good stories and some case studies. Um, any of the listeners that we have today, tell them how they would find you. My website, my firm's website is orlandolaw.net. That's orlandolaw, one word, .net. The law firm's telephone number is 407-425-9566. My email is gsalzman, just like my name, at orlandolaw.net. Very nice. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, we are going to, we'll bundle all this up and we're going to put it out there and we'll make sure we get you all the content and all of your contact information. We will link in the podcast to make it really simple so that they can find you. But I know some people will be listening to it on audio. So I always like to put it out there. Well, well, Gary, I really appreciate your time. It was Thanks so much for sharing your expertise. I, I learned some stuff today. I made copious notes over here. And, um, you know, hopefully something something positive will come from it. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, once again, everybody, thanks for listening today. This is Matt Chancy. This was the Tax Alpha Podcast. And until next time, have a great day. 
thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chansey. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 